Welcome to the Action Network Podcast, the number one show for the invested sports fan. Without further ado, that's what the game's all about. All of a sudden, you feel like you can't miss. Welcome to the Action Network Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Moore, for this NBA edition. Offseason is here. We don't have a lot to talk about. I did a huge thing on win totals, uh, breaking down kind of my early thoughts on all 30 teams, because I'm a lunatic, and did 4,000 words on early thoughts. I'll have a lot more on win totals, both next week and in the coming weeks as we get ready for preseason, which, guess what? It's going to go by quicker than we think. Uh, The schedule will be out here in a few weeks. But before then, I kind of wanted to take a a step back and look at what happened. So today we got two conversations. The first is with Royce Young of ESPN, simply titled, What the Hell Happened with the Thunder? Uh, Just what happened since the Paul George trade, how they came to this decision, what that means to them. There's nobody better to talk to than Royce Young. I worked with him at CBS, and now he works for for ESPN, the worldwide leader. So first, enjoy that. And then we're going to talk to Worldwide Wob, and Wob and I are going to talk a little bit about super teams and trios and duos and looking back at the last 10 years of kind of the most dominant franchises throughout its course. Uh, A lot of interesting stuff in there. I enjoy talking to Wob about that. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Action Network podcast wherever you get your podcast. It helps us out a lot. And I will uh, be back with another episode next week. Until then, uh, here's, first off, Royce Young. All right, join me is Royce Young. Royce has covered the Oklahoma City Thunder forever, like literally as long as Oklahoma City Thunder have been a thing. So I thought, Royce, you'd be the best person of anyone for me to call up and ask, um, what the hell happened? What, what the hell just happened? Let's start here. Were you as caught off guard by the moves as everybody else? The Paul George trade, yeah, Matt. I mean, like nobody had any feeling that that was coming whatsoever. Obviously, both sides needed that to kind of happen in the shadows, and they didn't need anything to leak out. But even just the whispers of an idea that Paul George would even be open to that, nobody had any any kind of inclination that that might be coming. Now, once that happened, it became pretty obvious to everybody that Russell Westbrook was going to be available for trade. And so that wasn't surprising at all. Uh, that was more of a, a matter of when, not if. But the fact, you know, it's it's just funny to think about that. I remember having a conversation with a few people in the Thunderfront office last summer after Paul George resigned, and they were kind of like, "Man, isn't it going to be nice to just have a simple summer next year?" Because because every Thunder summer, it was Kevin Durant's free agency. It was would Westbrook sign an extension? It was getting Paul George to resign, and now they had these two guys locked up for the long term. They were in the primes of their careers, and they could finally sit back and say, let's all just take a deep breath in July and not really worry about it. And they were wrong about that because uh, the NBA is the NBA and things, things tend to go sideways quite quickly. So there's going to be, as there always is, because uh, the Thunder, I think, are the favorite target of everyone in the media. Uh, I, I tend to, to shrug away stuff about the media. I tend to take umbrage at that. But them relocating the team from Seattle, a, a coastal team, they're being good immediately. They're having these MVPs, the Harden trade. Like They've just garnered a lot of right. uh, criticism. Do you feel like there was anything that could have been done to salvage this or was it as simple as Paul George wanted to go home once Kawhi made that an opportunity for him to go home and compete that was going to be the case the Thunder weren't going to fight and try and 
you know, may have an unhappy star and, and prolong everything. And once that happened, Russ was gone. The Athletic reported yesterday that there were actually like earlier rumblings about the Thunder looking at least at possibly trading Westbrook. Mm-hmm. So do you think the situation could have been salvaged to keep those two and, and remain in contention? Um, or was there no way of really getting around this? Well, the, the first thing they could have done differently was get out of the first round. And that's, and seriously, that's, that was a, a big issue, not just from Paul George and Russell Westbrook's perspective, which clearly a lot of that responsibility falls directly on them. They weren't getting it done. Um, but also uh, the front office felt that way too, that, you know, that this is something that, uh, I reported after it happened that the Thunder really looked at it, at it as this was this upcoming season was sort of it. It was in some ways they had one more opportunity to really take a real big swing at this because the roster was way too expensive. They were going to have to trim back eventually. And unless this upcoming season was really successful and, and how, how the, uh, the Thunder defined success was a little bit up in the air, whether that meant conference finals, whether that meant NBA finals, meant, whether that meant title or bust. They, they were prepared and, and had a plan in place to start the teardown next summer because they understood that this, this kind of window of opportunity couldn't last forever at, at the price that the roster was, was costing them. So, you know, I, I think that all of that kind of had the Thunder with a plan in place. It's not like Paul George came with his trade request, Matt, and the Thunder and, and Sam Presti was like, uh-oh, what, what do we do now? It, they had this plan kind of ready for the button to be hit when they needed to. They just thought it would come next summer. Now, could they have maybe put things back together where they, they weren't, they weren't facing this right now? Yeah, absolutely. And they thought they had quite honestly, because that's why they went out and signed Mike Muscala and Alec Burks. They did those, those sort of kind of fringe moves with the mindset of let's add to this roster, try to get it a little bit better, try to get it in a place where it can compete. The Thunder's every intent this year was to compete for, for the playoffs and, and for what they thought could be a, you know, a deep playoff run. They felt pretty optimistic about it. They felt like Westbrook could play better than he did last year. But they were also they were also kind of concerned at the same point, Matt. You know, Paul George, I don't know how much time he's going to miss in the regular season, but he probably will miss some time recovering from his shoulder surgeries. And if they got off to a slow start and, you know, this trade request had kind of been lobbed by Paul George and the Thunder couldn't get it done. And they're, you know, four and eight or four and seven after the first couple of weeks and George isn't back yet. And now the trade request goes public. Now there's higher pressure. They can't get the same kind of return. That, that was something that the Thunder were concerned with, knowing that, they kind of had this one year window of opportunity to, to begin with. And, and I'd also rewind it to say, this is something I said on sports center the morning after they traded Westbrook, that the conversations with Westbrook, uh, they dated, they predated the Paul George trade for sure. They, the, the Thunder had kind of two way conversations with Westbrook about what do you think the future looks like? Where do we go from here? What's it going to be? And um, that shouldn't be a surprise that the Thunder are communicating with their franchise player in that way. And, you know, I, I believe some of those conversations may have said, you know, a trade could be on the horizon. What do you think about that? How do you, how, you know, where are the places you might want to go? But all that to be said, they thought they had it in a place where they were going to play out this upcoming year and hope that uh, they could have a successful season. Part of me just can't believe how snake bit the franchise is. Um, right. And I don't, I don't think it's about Seattle. I think it's just like, they just are snake bit in a certain degree. Like they were really fortunate to have landed the draft spots and to have been smart enough to land the guys that they did. And they built the organization well, and they did all these things, you know, 2012, they weren't ready, but beyond like Abaka's injury, Westbrook's injury, Kevin Durant's injury in those years, um, Clay Thompson going supernova in game six um, in 2016. Cap spike. 
the cap spike, like even last year, because I was out there in January and I wrote all that stuff. I mm-hmm. uh, did a whole thing on PG and did a whole thing on the Thunder. And, yeah, you were there when P- Paul George was like playing like the best basketball in the world. At that and like I had bought in, like I'll maintain, like I wasn't wrong. I, I was in Denver the night that his shoulder got hurt and I knew something was wrong. And then in, in the Denver Nuggets visiting locker room, the training section is at the front of the locker room so you can't hide guys away which by the way should be changed just going to put that out there all training staff <laughs> things in the back but because of of how obviously all teams treat visiting locker rooms to make them uncomfortable those guys were in the front and like i wasn't trying to listen in like i'm usually trying to like block all that stuff out because it's none of my business and like that's private medical stuff but like paul george openly as i'm standing there in a quiet locker room says yeah i felt something like something didn't feel right after that hit. I was like, oh, and like, I kind of like asked PR about it and they were like, I don't think there's anything going on, but I'll make sure to check in because they didn't know then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he was like, oh yeah, he's out the next game. I was like, oh, and obviously it kind of like spiraled from there. And like, I will maintain that if Paul George does not suffer that injury versus Denver, if he doesn't get hurt, they get out of the first round. I think they probably beat Denver. I think they probably make the Western Conference Finals versus a a just hanging on by a thread warriors team and everything changes and that's like how it goes and that that's one of the reasons i'm so kind of like really surprised at how everyone reacted to the first round exits it seems like like westbrook and george and the front office were all like two and everyone said this like can't get out of the first round can't get out of the first round it's been three years and they haven't got out of the first round i was like all right well look first year totally different deal like they were recovering from durant they didn't have a plan they hadn't rebuilt the roster Westbrook goes crazy his MVP year. They lost the Rockets who were better. No big deal. The second year, Westbrook loses his mind versus Ricky Rubio. Just loses his mind. And they don't cover Joe Ingles as well as they need to. And like that one was just like, it was a bad matchup that they played terribly in. Okay, that one, fine. But then this one, I'm like, Paul George is healthy. They probably win that series. Uh, It goes entirely differently. Like the Blazers were obviously, they made the Western Conference Finals. So it looks like they were this really great team. Uh, They were a team that ran into the right sequence of teams at the right times. And that's kind of how the Blazers have been under Terry Stotts. But I will always kind of feel like, no, I I think the Thunder were better. But I seem to be in the minority of that, including the Thunder, who seem to think like, no, we we really weren't good enough. Yeah. And look, I I think that like you kind of laid out there, Matt, the Thunder are a popular team to what if to infinity right i mean you can what if them to death because of the players that they've had on their team and in some ways it's fair i mean they they did have james harden they did have kevin durant they did have russell westbrook and serge Ibaka. and i think some people are like you know they, they point at that as some sort of uh you know massive uh blemish on the organization but i think a lot of people within the thunder look at it as like yeah they had those players like what would have been better to have whiffed on those draft picks and not had kevin durant and not had james harden like would would that have would that help your perception of them for them to have not drafted those players and look it's obvious that losing them some by trade some by free agency does not reflect well on them necessarily but at the same point look at this summer i mean half of half of an all-star team changed teams this year and people are thinking that oh yeah, the Thunder team from seven years ago should still be together. I mean, that's like, it's kind of ridiculous to think that those four players should still be together. So all that to be said to, to the point where, where you get to now and the chances that they had this, this past season, that's why they felt like they also kind of had some optimism for this upcoming year. The Western Conference felt feels a lot more open, or at least it did before um, all the, the madness of you know July 5th or 6th or whenever that started. And the Thunder felt like, 
look, Russell Westbrook can play better than he played last year. He had some some kind of bizarre shooting issues, free throw issues. Paul George gets healthy, and they could really try to make a run at uh, pushing a little bit farther. But I think at the same point, they also looked at the outcomes that they had experienced. And, you know, I think that you can say that Paul George's shoulders had a big influence, but he also played pretty well against Portland, and Portland didn't have use of Nurkic. So, I mean, you know, they they weren't kind of – making excuses on their side. And, and and again, I think that the responsibility lies directly at George and Westbrook. They just kind of didn't get it done. And that's the way the front office kind of wondered, like, could they get it done? And while also kind of believing that there's reason to believe that it was a team worth bringing back and trying it all over again. Now, um, the other kind of the other factor with, with it is, is, you know, when Westbrook in 2016 decided to resign after Durant left, it was like, he was saying, I'm planting my flag. I don't want to leave. Here's where I want to be. And there was that kind of resiliency to like Westbrook. It was a stubbornness, maybe, or resiliency, however you want to look at it. He, he wanted to stay. He wanted to, to be part of, of kind of retooling the roster and making another run. Clearly, he didn't, he didn't feel that way this time around. And when Paul George decided that he wanted to leave, Westbrook didn't try to re-recruit him. He didn't try to change his mind. If, and, and I don't mean it to sound as, as a critical thing, but Westbrook kind of saw it as his opportunity to leave as well. And I think that everybody kind of sell, saw this as it's run its course. Here's the time to hit the eject button. You know, um, a lot of people kind of looked at it, Matt, like the Thunder shouldn't really panic here. Look at what the Blazers did. The Blazers stuck with it. They could have panicked after getting swept, after losing 10 straight playoff games. The Blazers kept with that group and it paid off. They went to the conference finals. A lot of people felt like the Thunder should follow that same sort of mindset. Um, which I think the Thunder were going to. The, the problem was their two top stars didn't want to follow that type of mindset. Paul George and Russell Westbrook didn't feel that way. They felt like it was time to change. So going forward, when I initially had done my first run of um, win totals, I like tanked them. I was like, they trade everybody. Like Chris Paul is probably going to get dealt. Like there's nobody mm-hmm. there. Like this is going to be awful. Like I had them, I think I had them uh, as low as like, like in the twenties. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, well, let's actually look at this. Like, are they going to be able to defend the way that they have throughout the years? Because they've always been a really good defensive team, even before Paul George was there. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I think Adams can have a bounce back season. The bench will still be good because New Orleans, I think, at least makes enough defensive plays to be a force down there. Um, They're still going to have Terrence Ferguson losing Jeremy Grant hurts. They're going to get Andre Robertson back. That's going to help because I thought he was defensive player of the year before he got hurt. And assuming that he plays basketball again, be good on that end, uh, if nothing else. And Chris Paul, um, they don't have Westbrook anymore, which is right. Um, You know, Chris Paul last year after the all-star break was, was really good defensively. And so I was like, yeah, but how are they going to score? Like, where are they possibly going to get points from? And I was like, wait, they have Daniel Gallinari and and Shad Gilders Alexander. I forgot about that. Those are two guys. I just completely forgot. Now, like, that's not like a roster you look at and go like, oh yeah, it's gonna be like a top 10 offense, but their win total is 35 and a half. And I'm talking myself more and more into the over with the caveat that you can't really bet it because you don't know if they're going to keep yeah. everybody. There's just no way to know if they're going to do, if, if Sam's uh, going to eventually pull the trigger on a, a diminished return for Chris Paul, if that's out there, we don't know if Robertson's going to be on the table. We don't know if Adams, like Adam seems like a very right. movable deal at 12 mil. And, and so like, he seems like he's a guy that can get, moved and that to me means that they're mostly like a stay away what are you expecting for the thunder this season two months out of the start yeah you're exactly right i mean look i think that they can win more than 35 games and i think the thunder believe it too matt i think they feel like this team that they currently have if you just took away the jersey 
Thunder and just the, the recent history of trading away two all-star players in uh, Russell Westbrook and Paul George and just said, okay, you've got a team of Chris Paul, Stephen Adams, Terrence Ferguson, Danilo Gallinari, Gilgis Alexander. You lay that team out there, you'd say like, hey, that, that's a team competing for a playoff spot. I mean, that's, that's not a bad team right there. Um, so, but the, the issue is, like you said, that may not be the team that they have post trade deadline or even past December 25th. So it, it's, a, it's a hard team to really predict because if they were to keep this group together, which they could. I, I, I don't think that it is a foregone conclusion that they trade Chris Paul. I think that if things go well and they, you know, the Thunder, look, they don't necessarily want to, to win. They're not looking to retool this team and, and, and build a new contender around Chris Paul, Stephen Adams, Danilo Gallinari. Those players, maybe not Stephen Adams as much, but Gallinari and Chris Paul are obviously going to be players that are going to be available for trade and, and to, to try to recoup assets. The Thunder are not in the full rebuild yet. I think a lot of people keep looking at them as this rebuilding team. They're, they haven't torn their house down yet. They're, they're still, they've just gotten the roof off. They, they haven't got it down to the studs yet so they can start putting the new house back together. And that, that, that rebuild where they win, you know, 18 to 25 games is coming in a couple of years that they're not there yet. They still are trying to flip some of these, these high caliber players they have for, for future assets or young players or whatever it might be. So I don't know. It's, it's just hard to look at it. They could be a team that wins, 41, 42 games. They could be a team that wins 28 because half the roster is, looks different come you know January 15th. I, I don't really know. <laughs> but if they keep this group together, which again, I think that they might based on how it goes. And if Chris Paul buys in and he kind of boosts his trade value and becomes somebody that's tradable next draft where he can get more in return, then they could be a team winning 40 to 43 games, I think. I think that there's a real possibility of that. Final question for you. Is anyone going to have to work harder over the next five years than the Oklahoma city draft scouting department. Like is, is anybody going to have to work harder because like they have so much draft equity. I can't even make sense of it. I copied it out of real GM and like copied into a notebook file and you have to scroll. Even if I go full page on it, it's insane how many picks they have that's down the line. Yeah. Um, can one, is anybody going to work harder? But two, how are the fans going to handle kind of making it through this period before they start yeah. to get, the better caliber picks that's a great question and on the on the draft situation it's also not just uh you know the college scouting guy you know what he's got to go through but he's got to go like watch some seventh graders or something because right. some of those picks some of those picks are uh, I, I love the idea matt that there's some seventh grader out there right now that has no idea that he just got traded for paul george like that like he's he's part of the paul george trade and uh he's going to be drafted in 2026 but the Thunder are doing, I don't want to say unprecedented, but but I do think that they are doing something a little bit unusual and they're trying to think outside the box of how they can rebuild the team. You know, they they had a they had a decade-long run of success. And when Sam Presti showed up with the team in Oklahoma City, he talked about sustained success in a small market. And look, they didn't win titles, and you know, everybody evaluates them very harshly on that fact. But in terms of accomplishing their goals of sustaining a successful small market franchise, they did that. They had the second most wins in the NBA over the last 10 years. They had a winning season every year except for the first one where they showed up in Seattle. So that this was a this was a well-run, good franchise that won games. And so to your point, you know, when they transition into this where they are building out for the long term, they have to think outside the box because they've got to figure out a way to rebuild it. They understand the challenges of operating in Oklahoma City. So how will the fan base react to that? I, I have my concerns. I, I'm a little bit skeptical that – when they're, this team is, you know, 22 games under 500 in March and they're playing 
you know, the, you know, some team, the Phoenix Suns or whatever on a Tuesday night, like our, how are fans going to react? And, but I would also say this, that's not unusual for any other city. And I think people kind of view Oklahoma city as like, how will they handle that? Well, go to a Washington wizards game in March and, you know, when they're playing a bad team down, you know, 25 points or whatever, nobody's showing up for that game either. They're in a bigger market, which helps in terms of the money that they can, they can draw. But it, it's, it's not like this kind of unusual situation just because it's Oklahoma city. So fan support might wane a little bit in terms of who's showing up, but once the team starts to turn a corner again and they start that rebuilding process, everything will come back. And, and so I think there's a lot of, a lot of optimism um, within the franchise and within the fan base that they can kind of rediscover it. Look, are they going to draft three straight MVPs again? Probably not. That's a little bit unusual to draft you know, Durant, Westbrook, and Harden in consecutive drafts. I don't think that they can plan on doing that. But can they build a contender again? I think they probably can because they have a really well-run front office that has a pretty good draft record. So I, I think people in Oklahoma City are sad that it ended, but also optimistic for, for kind of restarting this and, and seeing what the next era looks like. Great stuff. All right, that's Royce Young from ESPN. Royce, thanks for joining us on the Action Network podcast. You bet, Matt. Great stuff, and my thanks to Royce for joining me. Next up, here's Worldwide Wob. Uh, we're going to talk about a number of things, the conversation. We decided to just kind of let it go a little bit and just talk about kind of what we've seen from this decade and what we've seen in the last couple of weeks, what the future means for super teams and, and all of that. Uh, a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, here's my conversation with Rob Perez, a.k.a. Worldwide Wob. All right, Wob. The Thunder are over, and that's crazy to me, but that's true. Like The Thunder are finally completely and truly over. There's a lot to look at. We're all focused on, oh, what's Houston going to look like with those two? And what does OKC do? Can they trade Chris Paul? And what are Kawhi Leonard and, and Paul George going to look like? And we don't ever really take a moment, and I think that this stretch from July into August provides us with a rare opportunity when nothing's happening, knock on wood, uh, to be able to actually look back. So, like, my first thing I, I, I wanted to kind of ask you is, um, what are the teams that are going to most stand out to you from the last, like, 10 years, from, like, 2010 to 2019, from this decade, that are going to kind of spell what defined it? And is there is there room for stuff for us to really remember and appreciate beyond just the Warriors? So, first and foremost, I have two words for you when you say the Oklahoma City Thunder are done. Uh, before we even get to the bigger picture. And my two words for you are Indiana Pacers. Remember when they traded Paul George, that team was supposedly restructuring, re retooling, and Victor Oladipo and Sabonis turned into, uh, arguably, together, might be better than what Paul George was. Oklahoma City's not done to me. Uh, I'm not saying Gilgis Alexander's going to turn into Victor Oladipo overnight, but they didn't get nothing back, and they're not going to be dead last whatsoever. Like, the Chris Paul... Gilgis Alexander, Stephen Adams, that team in Gallinari, that's a borderline playoff team. So I just want to get that out there first, that people are severely underestimating how decent, I'm not going to say good, how decent they can be. So because of that, now let's talk about the decade. So you want to start around like 2010. That's post the Boston Celtics original big three. That's when we start to get into the LeBron, not one, not two, not three, uh, Miami Heat squad. We go from there to the Dynasty Warriors super team. When I look back on it, to me, the eras have been kind of defined. It's been an arms race, right? The whole point of the big three was we're going to take pay cuts and we're going to play together and we're just going to simply out-talent the rest of the league because rings mean that much to us. Like for our legacy, for our business, whatever. We get rings and we worry about the newspapers later. That was the reason for Kevin Durant going to Golden State. That was the reason for the phone call from the parking lot. 
that's why the super team was created because the super team was the next evolution of the final boss from the big three. So super team was like Hampton's five, a five all-star lineup. But to end both of those eras or reigns was always Kawhi Leonard. First, he ended the big three in Miami by killing them in the finals. Then he ended the Golden State Warriors super team, obviously with the Toronto Raptors. And now we've gotten to the age of duos here at the end of the decade. And the age of duos to me is all of these top stars for the most part. And I'm talking LeBron, Durant, I'm talking about like five guys here. They've got their rings. So now it's, all right, well, we've checked that box. What's next here? Do we want to be the next billion dollar athlete? Do we want to be a global, like the next Cristiano Ronaldo? Do we just want to get together and play with our friends and at home where we're from? Because you can make that the case for what the Clippers did, that Kawhi and Paul George just want to go home. Uh, we're moving more towards away from off the court stuff is becoming the motivations and I don't want to say the word legacy, but what matters to these players? And I would challenge you to prove me wrong. Yeah, I think as I look back, like I was looking at this list today of the best teams in SRS, which is basketball references, simple rating system. What it is, is it's basically point differential versus strength of schedule, uh, which I think is a really smart way of being like, how did you beat, like how much did you beat the best teams by is, a, is kind of a, a better way to, to look at it. And the Thunder in 2013 were 13th all time. The top 10, six of the top 10 are taken by the Warriors and the Bulls. Uh, the Bulls in the mid-90s, obviously, and this Warriors reign. And the, the Thunder pop in there at, at 13th, which I, or 12th, actually, which is I thought was interesting that they were that close to being a top 10 all-time team. Um, they were really, there was a 60-22 and 22 team, and they had a real shot, and then Westbrook got hurt in the first round. And, like, we have hammered, I think, collectively, OKC for trading James Harden and losing Kevin Durant and now losing Paul George. And all these things that have happened and, you know, Westbrook being so divisive, et cetera. When I, like, I'll just look back and like that Thunder team was incredible. It, it will go down as I think one of the most underrated teams I've ever seen. And their reign was so long, like from 2010 to 2016, you got six years over half the decade of Russ and KD being in the playoffs together uh, and really pushing the envelope. And then like Harden and time has become looked at as like, being on those guys level but when he was in okc he wasn't like he was a sixth man because it made more sense obviously he was good enough to be a starter um, but he also was very much like he was like the third kind of supporting component and we're kind of seeing this like i'm really fascinated by the duos versus trios thing like what can you do with a duo that you can't with a trio can you just build better kind of supporting players can you build a better roster can you have better sustainability will your benches be better will you uh, be able to sustain injury to a better degree. Like, I, I think that that's really fascinating. Um, and that's before we even get to the point that the Lakers have a duo, they don't have a trio. And yet, I, unless you count Kuzma, which I do not. Can I ask you a question about OKC real quick? Yeah. I've never even thought about this until now. You, you spawned a new thought for me, which is challenging to do. 2011 OKC team. I want you to pick who's better. Uh, the finals team, 2011, or the 2016 team. 2016 obviously does not have Harden on it but those guys are at their peak of their galactic powers in terms of Westbrook, Durant. You got a Baca there. What team was better? Uh, it was a 12 team, by the way, that made the finals. 2011 lost the Mavericks in the Western Conference. Oh, yeah, sorry. Meant uh, so my answer would be uh, the 2016 team because like in 2012, they beat 
the Mavericks who were like a shell of themselves and it was like a revenge tour thing. Um, I believe they beat the Nuggets that year in the first round. And then they beat um, the Spurs in 2012. If you remember, they went down 0-2 and then won four straight. And they basically dared Russ in the first two games to make the mid-range jumper. And Russ was scared to. And then after game two, he started just repeatedly getting to the nail and knocking down the mid-range jumper. And, like, it drove Spurs fans crazy. And that was, that's how it used to be with Russ. Like, we look at him now and say, well, yeah, he's an awful shooter. Well, he wasn't always. Like, he could get hot from mid-range. If he did, you couldn't do anything. Because if you if came up on him, he was getting around you and scoring. However, in the finals, like, they were just outclassed. And we thought, like, oh, the Thunder are going to learn from this. They'll be back, and we're going to see this every year. And we right. never saw it again. But by by 16, you know, it was Billy's first year. And I remember thinking how, like, God, they're just not the same team defensively because they were putting in new stuff, and they were trying to see what they could do. And by the end of the season, they figured out, like, in March, after trying five different schemes, Donovan just chose one and was like, this is what we're going to do. And that's when they were just like frightening. They were so killer and they had shooters and they had spacing and they had so much athleticism. They just ran the ball down your throat. And Adams was such a huge part of that as well. Adams killed OK or Golden State. Like he was such a problem for them. You look at it and you say it took the, the 73 win team seven games and one of the best playoff performances I have ever. Like I am still shell shocked from watching Clay Thompson. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like game six play. It, to this day, I say it every time. It was the biggest nuts on the table game I've ever seen. Maybe yeah. another a LeBron performance in Boston. That game six in Boston was arguably a bigger nuts on the table game, but yeah. I've never seen those size nuts before. And, and for it to take all that to beat OKC, I think shows it. Like oh, the biggest thing with OKC is that they were so well balanced. Like they could beat you in so many different ways, and they were never elite shooting. But they had Kevin Durant, one of the best shooters of all time in his prime and playing at such a high level. And they were angry and they were just fired up and they played with such confidence. Um, and they really played, they played with so much anger in the first, like all, and really throughout the series. They played with too much at the end. The Thunder are so much the story of Icarus. Like they just flew too close to the sun, where in game six and seven, they were so intent on beating them but they got sloppy and tired and they made mistakes and couldn't keep their composure. Um, And that's, that will always kind of like, that will always be part of that, that legacy. But I definitely think the 2016 team was better. The one that I think from the decade that I really wish that we got in the matchup of was um, there's a lot of things that, that you have to kind of like chaos theory out. Like, all right, if LeBron resigns, Bosch doesn't develop the blood clot. um, And then like, maybe like his entire that was a condition so maybe it was always going to happen but let's say it doesn't um let's just say that we remove the blood clot from Bosch's entire thing and wade was still people forget how good wade was in the subsequent years after lebron left like he was very quietly still really good i always will wonder what would have happened if we would had the triad heat if they'd stayed together and retooled with a younger core that riley probably would have pursued as supporting players um, versus with that skirmish defense versus the Warriors. I'll always regret that we never got to see mm. that combination against each other. Mm, that's a good thought. So Bosch prevented that, right? Because didn't he sign first or something? And then he got his heart problem. There was reasons why LeBron went back to Cleveland that had nothing to do with like salary cap or something. But the impression that I've gotten, this is what everyone kind of says, is everyone says, you know, he knew that it was over. He knew that they were old, that it was kind of done. And he knew how good Kyrie was and he knew that they had the number one pick so they could get love. 
And I'm still kind of like, does LeBron really think that Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love were better than the two guys that he just won two titles with and went to four straight finals? Did he really think that? And like, I wind up, especially the Lakers move, I think it actually cements this in my opinion, in retrospect. I think LeBron made, after he won two titles and got that off of his back, like I'm a, I'm a multiple rings guy. I think he started to make decisions based off of what he wanted for his life, his legacy, and his brand. And the basketball stuff, he was like, I can do this wherever. I'm good enough. I can figure this out. And I think he did that with Cleveland where he was like, I want I want to go home. I want my kids to be back in, in Ohio. I want to bring them a title. It's going to be good for my brand because it's like a total redemption story. I just think that there was a lot of connections there that was like he just decided to do that versus – it was some sort of really strategic move. Like, I'm sorry, no player is ever going to be like, hmm, you know what's actually best for me winning a championship? Leaving Dwayne Wade and Pat Riley to go play for Dan Gilbert with Kyrie Irving. Nope. That, that feels like an outlier to me just because of his connection to Cleveland and right. the history he had. Uh, while you were saying that, I, I went all the way back to the Showtime Lakers. And Is there a zigzag theory in terms of like super teams versus the one, like the Matrix, there's always the one that resets it, the Matrix, and restarts life. So we had the Showtime Lakers, which whatever, let's just call them a super team. And we have the Jordan era, which is like focused around Michael Jordan. Coming out of the Jordan era into, are we at the the first reign of Kobe yet? I don't think so, but there was a, certainly a Spurs team in there that was built around the team concept versus the individual. And then we get into the LeBron age of the end of the 2000s. And that's the one big matchup for me that we never got was Kobe versus LeBron, which kind of spurned the and spawned out the Miami Heat big three. So now we get into that age of like, okay, now everyone let's, let's team up for the next five, six years. And now that the teams are done, we have the Kawhi duo age. And it's just, I don't know if it's just luck in terms of going back and forth between like, okay, now we should all team up and go get rings. It's a matter of like, who has the rings? So if Giannis never gets one, is he going to lead the next super team era? And is that going to happen in Milwaukee or somewhere else? Do rings matter that much to him? Do rings matter that much to anyone at all anymore is what I'm starting to think about. But if we go back to a big three type of uh, style for assembling super teams, it feels like he's the only one left. I don't know if Davis is good enough or healthy enough to consider, but Giannis would feel like the beginning of, oh my God, like he's not doing it himself. He went to blank to go get a ring. Uh, just a first thought, that's all. I wonder, you asked, like, do rings matter that much anymore? I wonder if the fact that from 2012 to 2018, for, that, for a seven-season stretch, it was either LeBron or the Warriors. It was either LeBron or the Warriors. And so when you have all that consolidation of the titles with nobody else in there, you don't have as much peer pressure to be like, oh, I got to get a ring because this other guy got one. Because nobody else right. got one. Right. It, was, it was just LeBron and Kyrie. And it was LeBron, Kyrie, and Love. And really right. just LeBron and Kyrie. Maybe there's been a change in that. Now, you didn't have that in the 90s. Guys were still desperate for it. You know, the guys were still ring chasing then, like Barkley joining the Rockets. But I do wonder if maybe that has altered things a little bit. If social media, like all these decisions, like we've seen how unhappy guys that even have the titles and everything, how unhappy they still are. Durant, if you ask anyone on social media, just social media, yeah. like Kevin Durant's, his rings and his finals MVPs, you add them all up and it's equal to... 0.5 of yeah. what Kawhi Leonard just did with the Raptors right. because he did it by himself oh. and all the narratives around him and the publicity he got for doing it as a solo act, make it worth more in the eyes of fans. Now, what does that mean in terms of the eyes of the players and like the hall of fame? Is it different? And I think it is different because the players probably just see rings as rings, no matter how you get them because they're, they're in the trenches and we're not, but you do bring up social media and 
businesses are formed around images and narratives and agendas and Twitter accounts and stuff like that. So as the technology evolves in terms of how we consume the game, will mindsets of these stars evolve with it? Because so far, I don't think the answer was yes until just this upcoming season. Yeah. Because like, look at it, like Wade was willing to take a step back for LeBron in 2015 and 16 when they were they lost, but they had the chance to, obviously. You had Steph as the best player, and then Draymond and Clay were willing to be the supporting guys. And then when Durant came, Curry was willing to come to change and be the supporting guy. Like Curry shifted to be like, no, it's okay. I can be the second best guy, and that's all right. And so like that's the question now with, I think, as we judge it. And, and even to a degree, to a degree, like Kawhi definitely did it on his own. Um, but Kyle Lowry has been like an all-star top-level point guard in the Eastern Conference for years. Lowry slid very comfortably into, I'm going to be like the second best guy and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll lead the team when you're reload managing and do all that kind of stuff. And like he supported him. And like they had other great guys, right? Like Pascal Siakam was huge for them this year and great in the playoffs. And um, Marcus Saul was huge in the finals and uh, Fred Van Vliet and all these guys. But you're always going to have those kind of, kind of situations, like the Bulls even. Like I, I think a lot about Horace Grant and how good he was from 89 to 94. Like he was awesome uh, in that first run with the Bulls. Defense, offense, did all the little things. Uh, and he was like this, that supporting player. But also Pippen could have been a number one guy, but he was good being the number two. And so like, you have to have those guys that are willing to do that. And like the, maybe that's a reason to really buy in on the Clippers is that's what they've got is they've got it. They've got an MVP quality top guy in Kawhi Leonard. And they've got a guy that was third in MVP voting this year. And Paul George, who is willing to come out and say like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm okay with being second fiddle. He was okay with it with Russ and he's okay with it. Kawhi. Like maybe that works for the Lakers. Maybe AD's willing to be the second guy or LeBron. It, I was thinking for them, it should be the other way around. Batman yeah. and Robin has always proved successful back yeah. to Jordan and Pippen, Kyrie and LeBron, you name it. And the one time that like, they tried to be two Batmans that you just talked about, Wade and LeBron. It didn't work. And as soon as they realized that we have to have an alpha and a beta, uh, that seems to be the strategy here and why duos certainly can work. And if Paul George can be that secondary primary option is what I like to call him. If he can be that for the Clippers, uh, they're certainly going to be even better than we imagined. But the interesting one is across the street uh, with the Lakers because I would like to see LeBron become the primary secondary guy just because I know how good Davis is. Like that man needs to be unleashed. He is at the peak prime of his physical career. LeBron is still arguably the best player on earth, but he's the one guy that can make everyone else better as a Robin. It would be interesting to see like Davis commanding the ball down the stretch and let's see how this works. Um, Are we at that point yet? I don't know, but that is something that they need to figure out in the regular season that when the spotlight is bright here in May and June, who are we going to? Is it because you can't just switch it up and say like, all right, it's LeBron's turn. I, I don't think that can work. Um, despite how good these two guys are. I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of talking out my ass right now. But no, that's good. I think it's a good discussion. It's been good. Um, it's going to be fascinating. It's why like, I'm, I'm as excited for this season as any I think I've ever covered uh, in terms of the last time it felt like this was 2014-15, the start of the Warriors era, because we were just like, we don't know. Like, how, how's LeBron in Cleveland going to work? Like, they should be the title favorites, but there's a bunch of really good teams. And then like the Hawks emerged that season and were really fun. Uh, before they melted into oblivion in the playoffs, but they also they kickstarted the Warriors and the Thunder were still good. Like that season was awesome, and this one feels a lot like that with the possibility uh, of what's going to happen. And you'll be able to read all about it uh, as well as how to bet on it at Action Network. Uh, as this wraps up this edition of the Action Network podcast. 